I'm joined today by best-selling author and now a diplomat, Amish Tripathi, whose books uh, dealing with mythological subjects have been a hot favorite for a while now. And uh, today we are going to discuss issues of religion, mythology, what India can learn from its past, how to move on, and of course, the new book, War of Lanka, and what India can actually learn from Amish Tripathi's Lanka. You are listening to News and Views, the Quinn's podcast series where we introduce you to some of the greatest minds across different fields through in-depth interviews. You can check out episodes of this series and all other podcasts by The Quint on our website or wherever you get your podcast. This is Nishta Gautam and I am in conversation with best-selling author Amish Tripathi. Congratulations, Amish. This is phenomenal. You know, one book after another and each a bigger success than uh, the previous one. How does it feel to be, uh, you know, in this moment right now? I, I guess I should say it feels like living in a dream. Don't wake me up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but look, the uh, uh, you know one of the things I've learned is life is what happens to you while you're planning other things. And uh, I never thought I was going to be a full-time uh, writer when I was a banker. Uh, fortunately, life took me in that direction. And uh, now I'm a diplomat in addition to this, and I still find the time uh, to write. Of course, write on weekends. I'm a workaholic, fortunately. Uh, so uh, life is interesting if you allow uh, things to carry you where they are meant to. Okay, uh, things to be carried. Uh, Sita should not be carried away from <laughs> from one place to another. Otherwise, War of Lanka yeah. wouldn't. Uh, but in the but in the in you know in in the traditional way and even in the Adbhut Ramayana, she fights. Modern Indians are used to the 1980s uh, television serial, uh, and even in my version, she fights. She's a victory, warrior of Mithila. Yeah, victory and defeat are part of the game, right? That happens. No one wins all the time. No one. Right. The question is, uh, do you fight when you're uh, that's the difference between those who at least have an opportunity to win and those who are guaranteed losers. You at least have to fight. You at least have to try. Right. If you're not going to try, then loss is guaranteed. Absolutely. What does Lanka mean to you? Is it the, 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 the mythical city, the city that had everything going for itself, a city of gold and prosperity and everything and just one Thing, one mistake brought it down and it happens to all civilizations. One of the theories I have is that actually the decline of a civilization is a bit like a plane crash. I, I read all kinds of things, right? And I primarily read nonfiction. And among the things I've read is a paper studying plane crashes. Mm-hmm. And the things you realize, it's not just one mistake. For a plane crash to happen, various things have to go wrong, one after the other, one after the other. So even the, uh, you know, even what happened at Lanka, I don't think it was just, at least that was my theory. So that's the way it is in the book as well. There are choices that Lanka made, which made the civilization weaker, that made uh, that made it possible for, uh, you know, for Lord Ram uh, to defeat them. Besides, of course, the brilliant tactics and strategy that Lord Ram used and the motivation that his, uh, you know, that his that his army had. Uh, so I put various theories in there uh, for perhaps the mistakes that Lanka made, and then what can India learn from those mistakes? Absolutely. What does India? Um, what What do you want India to learn from the mistakes that Lanka made? Look, the Ram, Three. 
three mistakes. The Ramchandra series is essentially an exploration of what an ideal society should be, right? Uh, so among the things I spoke of uh, in my books is that in the Sapta Sindhu, there was active derision and attacks against the Vaishyas, the the trader class, right? Uh, you know, just because a few traders are chores, sub chores. Now any society which does that is guaranteeing poverty for itself because you need your businessmen to earn money. How will society generate wealth? So balance on that. Uh, on that score uh, second uh, too much militarism okay you need militarism to defend yourself you know if everyone says oh you know eye for an eye makes a whole world blind you will be the only one blinded you have to have the capacity and the intent to defend yourself that's another thing uh, and uh, the third thing is too much focus on just one one of the things i say in lanka is that as a society it got geared toward what it's primarily wanted to do it was primarily driven by its trading frontier city gokarna mm-hmm. which was only interested in trade nothing else which meant that uh, you know many of the other aspects which would make a stronger society got weakened so for example they had to import all their food it was very easy for them to be blockaded so these are things i dis- i discuss various things i I like to exp- explore philosophies through my fiction books. Absolutely, and uh, we have all seen that you know how how you have uh, experimented with ideas and how you have sort of uh, brought clarity. I remember you know you and I had spoken earlier that you know in the in the process of writing these books, you you got a lot of clarity about your own thoughts mm-hmm. because you were kind of testing your own views uh, about the world. The way I see it is, look, if if a book has no philosophy in it, it's as pointless as a body without a soul. So uh, the purpose is not the story. And the story is to attract you. The purpose is the philosophy is within that story, which you'll hopefully explore as a reader and think about. And there are some things which, uh, you know, I don't have a sure stand on, like, you know, the debate between law and justice, uh, you know, that one spoke of, ideally, they should be in consonance with each other. At times, you know, they are in conflict. And uh, many of these issues, at least I feel that we as a society have not debated enough. Even the Constituent Assembly debate, not not enough people, uh, you know, read the Constituent Assembly debates. Even the Constituent Assembly debates largely were, yes, people from different religions, different caste backgrounds, but they were largely the elite, largely the English speaking uh, uh, elite. You know, were the views of others uh, taken into account? Should we actually just have these debates as a society? We lead to a it will lead to a state and a system uh, which will probably work in consonance a lot more with the, what the society's instincts are. I and mean, if you think about one of the things that strikes me immediately, in a society where 95% of the people, many of those who speak English also are primarily comfortable with their own language. And some of us very comfortably, I speak two languages very comfortably, English and Hindi, and I can understand two more languages. But there are very few for whom English is the primary language. And the senior levels of government, senior levels of courts, it's all in English. This is ridiculous, frankly, if you ask me. How is a common citizen supposed to engage, you know, with the state? What are the solutions? I don't know the solutions. I, I, again, I, there, there are no easy solutions. Yeah. But I'm just saying these are debates that were never had, right? Uh, and we'll have to find some middle ground. Should the court uh, things also be in bilingual, for example? It's just one issue. Right. I don't know. Right. I don't know. Um, you know, when it when it comes to the the name of Lord Ram, mm. you know, he has become of late a very polarizing deity. You know, there are people that uh, that uh, that are that are that have taken upon themselves to defend the honor of Ram. Mm. 
Do you think that's even possible? There are some habits we have learned from our invaders. The concept of blasphemy came to us from the invaders, essentially the Turks and the you know and the Europeans. We didn't have a concept of blasphemy. Uh, uh, at least a dharmic uh, way. There is no word for blasphemy in in Vedic Sanskrit. Uh, often, what happens is, you know, when a society suffers attacks, you know, it tries to defend, you know, in in some way or form. Pagan civilizations across the world have been wiped out. We are, the, we are among the last ones surviving. You know, uh, the same invaders who came here went to other places as well. Those are all dead. China and Japan are among the few pagan civilizations that have survived. Uh, and one of the things I've always held that uh, I find the path of wisdom of uh, paganism really inspiring. How do we make sure that that this path is defended without becoming a mirror image of the invaders who attacked us? No, but uh, when when you say that we um, we tend to become the mirror image of the invaders, but you know, invaders came, you know, if, even if I use your vocabulary, it's not part of my vocabulary, but people who came from outside, they became a part of this, this milieu. They became very much part of this milieu and nurtured this land as their own. They never, you know, unlike the British, they did not uh, loot the, uh, you know, the colony at, and uh, amassed that wealth somewhere else. Everything that was created was here. So yes, there was there was a mingling that was actually I would I would disagree because among the worst sufferers were actually Paswanda Muslims, for example. At some level, you know, who we call Delhi Sultan Mughals, they were Turks essentially. Mm -hmm. At some level, a few Hindus were given uh, uh, respect, like some of the Rajputs, for example. But among the worst sufferers were normal Hindus and normal Muslims. Paswanda, do you know even in Akbar's times, Paswanda Muslims were not allowed into Agra. But do you know that? Me. So. Uh, uh, this is how is this different from the British? So actually, the Turks treated Paswanda Muslims as badly as they treated ordinary Hindus. Absolutely. Rajputs were allowed incidentally Absolutely. into into Agra. Not all Rajputs. Mm -hmm. So someone like a Mahana, Mahana Pratap's you know family would not be allowed. Some other Rajputs were allowed. So these are things that perhaps we should have honest uh, debates on. Some among the invaders, like Akbar, was relatively decent. Some were terrible. Uh, but we have to understand it has nothing to do with people today. We also I have to understand that I've made clear that, always. That, it has nothing to do in any way. Ninety percent, ninety-five percent are actually Paswanda mm -hmm. Muslims who are descendants of you know uh, Buddhists or Jains or Hindus and who were actually deeply ill-treated by the you know by the ruling elite, the Turks, the Afghans. Elites, uh, yeah, the ruling elite. No, it was a, there always, was there, always had You should read their own texts. The no, 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 no. There was a racial element to it. Mm -hmm. There was a racial element to it. So, uh, they called themselves Ashraf, uh, the ruling elite. Uh, you know, so, they uh, they were usually Turks, Persians, uh, some Arabs, uh, Afghans. Uh, and like I said, you might find, you know, a few Rajput Mansabdars will find zero, precisely zero Paswanda Muslim uh, Mansabdars, none. Uh, the only, uh, you know, Sultan among, and I'm not talking about the Adil Shahis, you know, they were different. I'm talking about the Delhi uh, uh, Sultans. The only Sultan who had a bit of Paswanda blood was Mohammed bin Tughlaq. <laughs> and the only Sultan who has been demonized even by their own, even by his own, not, not, by, not by Hindus or Muslims, Indian Hindus or Muslims, but even by his own, was Mohammed bin Tughlaq. I, I surmise that perhaps this was one of the reasons. Mohammed bin Tughlaq, Mohammed bin Tughlaq, 
there were others far mm -hmm. more eccentric, mm -hmm. far worse. Frankly, they are not as demonized as Mohammed bin Tughlaq. Mohammed bin Tughlaq had some yadav blood, you know, if, if you don't, if you don't know. Uh, so there was there was a racist uh, element. Uh, in that, uh, sadly, you know, as as well, and talking about this, see, it's like the way I see it. Like I'm, I'm in the, I'm in UK right now in London. There are these conversations, you know, happening out there as well. Regrettably, in the West, it has become with a very extremist, you know, shouting, screaming kind of element. That's not good. We must speak of this, you know, in a calm manner, so that we learn not to uh, repeat those mistakes. Like one of the things I've always said, I'm never an advocate, This and this is certainly not our way. Violence as a response to words is not the Indian way. You know, it may have been a way of other cultures. It's not our way. You know, words are responded to by words. Violence is responded to by violence. Right? Uh, so, we'll have soldiers at the border who will defend. But uh, violence as a response to words is completely un-Indian. So, why, why are we... Are we, are we seeing this, you know, this springing of, uh, you know, militias that have taken upon themselves here and there? A lot of it is, you know, unresolved issues of history. You see that, you know, like, uh, for example, in the West, the attacks on slavers. Uh, but unfortunately, again, what's happening in the West is that people want to blame today's whites, you know, for what ancestors may have done, which I've said out there. I mean, I'm not a white person, but that's wrong. You know, uh, you can't blame today's white for what their ancestors may have done. But there's no harm in speaking honestly about, uh, you know, about what someone like a Cecil Rhodes uh, or a Yale may have done. No harm. And we should speak of it so that we learn, learn from those uh, mistakes. Learning, All our ancestors. In India, honestly, uh, Amish, mm. are we learning? Well, I discuss many of these issues in my books. My books are uh, selling well, so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps we are willing to debate them. <laughs> debate is another thing, but are the other outcomes being learnt? Because we see this growing intolerance towards each other. You know, it's it's just we are not tolerant of each other anymore. My sensibilities are always waiting to be hurt, whoever I may be. It's like as if I'm I'm waiting to be offended. Do you, do you feel that too? It's essentially game theory in action. What happens is in game theory, you react to how you see other people reacting. Mm -hmm. And it's happening in many parts of the world. It's not just in India. I see it in the West. I see it everywhere. You know, that uh, uh, if uh, being offended gives you power, then it's comparative offense mongering. Mm -hmm. And there are various groups that have started this across the world. And now other groups are learning it as well. Because if they can do it, why can't we? The only way to break such a game is uh, either everyone becomes, you insulted my God, I will attack you, I will carry out violence, etc. Either everyone does that or no one does that. If the situation is where only certain groups react and other groups don't, that's an unstable equilibrium. We all know that. And that's John Nash's uh, uh, theory. Let's hope that uh, that the world comes to the equilibrium which I would like, which is, uh, uh, you know, conversations, debates, sambad, which is the Indian way, uh, you know, where uh, we respond to words with words. Right, but do you, do you see that that our um, our ability or our capacity to even listen to each other has gone down? There is no dialogue happening, really. There is only a shout fest happening all the time. It's the same thing, game theory. Mm -hmm. If there is if there is a society which believes in Sambad 
and another one comes with i will you are false and you're going to burn in hell it will go in that direction then and either people like what happened to pharaonic egypt either they die out or a society becomes a mirror image of that which in a way you lose your essence in any case mm-hmm. in india at least i have a lot of uh, i have a lot more faith in our masses uh, you know than uh, than the elite if you see the pew survey for example mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it was extremely inspiring to see the attitudes of different religious groups yes and again this is very different from the elite uh i find much more of this negativity actually in in elite groups more than uh, you know 90% of all religious groups respect all religions yes uh vast majority of hindus were shown very comfortable going to places of worship of others if i remember correctly 90% of muslims believe in the concept of karma and dharma that's more than if i remember correctly than percentage of buddhists and this shows the attitude of the masses the masses are actually very comfortable with each other the masses are still deeply indian in our way mm-hmm. cuz you won't find these attitudes in other uh, countries and if uh, the masses in india were truly a reflection of the indian elite and i'm not calling out just one elite group all elite groups and sadly in india tend to be this way and sadly many of them tend to look down on the masses but i find more wisdom in the masses mm-hmm. uh because if the masses were also this way then we would have been another syria you know or pakistan or some other we are not right we are not and it's not because our police capacity is fantastic no, we know we know we know our we know our police is understaffed mm-hmm. we know our our courts are paralyzed and yet uh, an average american we're not city a, we're not a an average an average no but we don't have the state capacity that western states have mm-hmm. and yet average western cities will have 10 times the violent crime rates of india So why is that? Because our people are actually generally peaceful. You don't need that much policing to keep them peaceful, right? I have much more faith in the Indian masses, to be honest, than in the Indian elite. Right. Last question. Uh, you know, uh, forget about you know masses or uh, uh, you know um, the the elite of this country. Let's come back to religion. Mm. Essential uh, question here. The most fundamental question is: Do you think religion is uh, still a necessity? for this country to get behind it's a good idea. it's a good theoretical debate to have but the thing with theories are also one should see how it plays out in practice mm-hmm. uh you see countries where atheism has shot up like in germany like in european mm-hmm. uh, uh, countries in uh, in the us etc and uh, some of these countries now have ministers of loneliness okay communities have broken down uh, you'll be shocked to know how many people died alone at home in covid and bodies were discovered 6 months later that doesn't happen in india because someone or the others around all the time right so something sound nice in theory uh, how it plays out in practice can be very different again remember the indian approach to atheism was quite different because a majority of the dharmic schools of philosophy by the way are atheists right uh, sankhya mimamsa i'm sure you know that yes. they are all atheists yes. right mm-hmm. in the modern way because they don't believe in a creator god but that doesn't mean that they don't believe in dharma they doesn't mean that they don't believe in a sense of community because that's what keeps the asabhya of a society alive right uh so my my submission is modern new age atheism i'm not talking about the traditional indian or egyptian or southeast asian atheism that was very different but new age western atheism sounds very nice in theory in practice societies seem to be breaking down in places where atheism is shot up worth researching why
for listening to this episode. Follow us on Instagram at The Quint and tell us who you want us to speak to next. And check out our website, thequint.com, for more groundbreaking reports and videos. This was Nishta Gautam and I will see you in the next one. This episode was executively produced by Shelly Walia and Ritu Kapoor, edited by Anjali Palod, and theme music is from BMG Production. You were listening to The Quinn's Podcast.